0: Okay, Hebrews chapter 13 is found on page 1009 in these black Bibles, and I would encourage you to open with me if you'd like. However, like I've done before, if I'm going to be using a lot of Scripture references and for the sake of our time to move through them quickly, I've decided this week to post all of them on the projector behind me. So if any of you are like, eh, I'll just listen, I think that that's a good way to just receive the word and not try and flip around or maybe even take all the notes if you really just want hey can you just send me your notes and you're like I don't need to take any I'd be more than happy to do that if you want to let me know after the service Um, I think that one of the things I want to make sure is that we're all kind of on the same page about what's been happening the last few weeks in this series so the series is called in step with the gospel that phrase comes from a a passage of scripture in Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians 2, there's an issue that arises between Peter and Paul where Paul looks at Peter and says, Peter, your lifestyle, the way you're acting and behaving, is not in accord with or in, a, in step with the truth about the gospel. And so I'm using that phrase to say, listen, if we've spent the 20-some weeks that we have in Hebrews 1 through 12 to see what the gospel is, who Jesus is, how great he is, how much better he is than angels and better than Moses and better than the priests, etc., that's the truth of the gospel, But chapter 13 lays out for us several different commands, exhortations, and instructions for how we should live in light of that gospel. So we need that foundation as we dive into each of these issues. And so what we've done is the first three messages as you'll see cover really the first three verses. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. So we considered this exhortation about brotherly love in conjunction with the gospel truth that we're all part of a family because Christ is our brother, God is our father, our father disciplines us as children, that's Hebrews 12, Jesus is our brother, that's Hebrews 2. So that was week 1, and week 2 we looked at not neglecting to show hospitality, that some people might in fact entertain angels unaware, and that's a reference back to Genesis when Abraham and Lot entertained guests, and they ended up being angels. So, So in our second week, we considered the idea of hospitality that God, in the Gospel of Hebrews, welcomes us strangers into his presence and says, Since the blood of Jesus is the better and final sacrifice, come, come into worship. And so, here we have a God calling us in, even though we should be left out, and therefore we should show hospitality to those who are outsiders. In week three, we looked at those who are in prison. We remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them, and we connected that to chapter 10 when it talked about the idea of having compassion on those in prison. So we looked at the gospel and compassion, and so when we consider the way that we have been in such a terrible state that God did not stay in heaven, but he came down to where we are, there's the solidarity is maybe the bigger word, the the identity that God has with us by becoming a human, the humanity of Jesus, we looked at that and saw that God looked at us and met us where we were at. So we should too have compassion on those who are being mistreated and care for them. Last week was message number four. In verse four, and we just looked at the first phrase, let marriage be held in honor among all. And what we tried to do was just two simple things. Define what marriage is, And then five applications for how we can honor marriage. And so again, we're going to build off of that because our passage today, this is message number five, is continuing this thought, let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So part of the recap here is for you to understand that we're going to take last week and build off of that into this week and see how we can continue to honor marriage, but in particularly we're going to look at how we can honor marriage in our sexuality. So just... Again, a recap, three views of marriage that we looked at last week. The Catholic Church has called marriage a sacrament, which means you get a special act of grace that comes with Jesus' presence joining two people together, and it's a sacrament similar to the way they view the Lord's Supper and other sacraments, and this comes from their church tradition and law, and it's a confusion that they have as we looked back through history and as we look at Scripture, this idea of sacrament is nowhere to be found. Secondarily, the view that most people have that aren't Christians or aren't Catholics would be contractual. They view marriage as a contract that the civil government has the ability to determine who gets married or not. And both the church law and civil law can change really any time. If the church, the Catholic church, for example, wanted to change marriage laws, they could. If they wanted to change the definition, they could because it's not based really ultimately on scripture, it's based on their traditions. And civil law, they can change the law whenever the Supreme Court or local authorities decide that we're going to define marriage in a certain manner. But the covenantal view, which is the view that flows out of divine law, it flows out of the Bible, well, that, friends, just, it can't change. Marriage is going to be the same just as Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we look to God's word, we see that a covenant, and that's our next point, is a loving relationship with legal regulations. It involves a man, it involves a woman. All through Scripture, we see that marriage is defined as a man and a woman who come together in a loving relationship that is defined and expressed in a covenantal agreement. And this is what we talked about when everyone comes to a wedding and they hear the vows that are given. Those vows are promises and oaths made before God and all the witnesses to say, I will be with you forever till death do us part, the traditional vow language. So that's a little bit of a recap of what we've covered in terms of what marriage is. And if you want to hear more about that, then listen to last week's message again or for the first time. For this week, though, we're going to be in Hebrews thirteen four, looking at the second half of it, which is, like I said, a continuation. It's, it's not almost like two different thoughts. The and here isn't let marriage be held in honor, and then a second thought, it's, it's and here's the way to honor marriage. By keeping the marriage bed undefiled, and then here's one of the reasons why you should keep the marriage bed undefiled is because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, when we read passages like this and several other passages that are similar to this, the basic point to make is this. Friends, this is not difficult to understand. I don't care if you don't know Greek. I don't care if you hardly know English. If you can understand the words coming out of my mouth, whether or not you can even read, marriage is between a man and a woman. It should be held in honor, and marriage should be undefiled. It should be for sexual expression, which is the euphemism. The marriage bed should be held for only those who are married. And so it's it's quite simple in terms of when you think about what's being communicated here. What's not so simple is the application and how we do this, and all of those different questions that come up, especially in our culture in our day. But hopefully we can all see that the, the scriptures, in particular this scripture, says marriage should be seen as precious. That's actually another way to translate that word honor. The preciousness of marriage because of the preciousness of the gospel In the way that we view God and Jesus and the gospel is a reflection of how we view marriage. There's a, a link, and we Considered that much last week. And in terms of our sexuality, we need to realize that all sex, both in thought and in deed, outside of the covenant of marriage, dishonors marriage and does not treat it as precious. It defiles the marriage bed. So this concept is is not, I think, difficult, right? Adultery. Unless you really don't understand, adultery is when two married people don't have sex with each other, but with someone outside of that marriage relationship. That's adultery. That defiles marriage. Sexual immorality is the word pornea, which has the word that you might be familiar with when we talk pornography. It has that same root in it. It's the word all, most often translated as fornication, which means sex before marriage. Which, friends, if you didn't know this, it's very, very clear in the Bible that sex prior to getting married, so if you're a single person or if you're dating, that would be defiling or dishonoring the covenant of marriage because you're having the expression of the loving relationship but you don't have the covenant that, where that expression of loving relationship should flourish and be protected and honored. I mean, if you're having sex with someone that you're dating and you're not married to them at any moment, you, they could leave you and you could leave them. This is not helpful for marriages. This is not helpful for you. And God has given these instructions for our good. So most often porneia means fornication, but a lot of times this word is also used as just the junk drawer word. Like, you guys have a junk drawer at home where it's like, well, there's no real organization, just throw it in that junk drawer. Well, this word kind of serves in that way. Like, okay, so there's adultery, which is some of you here are married. If you have sex with someone that's not your wife, that's adultery. Now, everyone else, if you're not married, that's you. Okay, so this kind of simple, isn't it? You're either married or you're not married. And if you're not married and you're having any sexual activity in your thought or in your deed with your body, then friends, that is porneia. That is sexual immorality. And that defiles marriage when we act or think in those ways. So I think, like I said, this is easy to understand, but it can be extremely difficult to apply. So what I want us to do, as we've done every single time in this In Step with the Gospel series is look at the gospel through the lens of Hebrews 1 through 12. So we're going to see seven passages of Scripture in Hebrews 1 through 12, and then we're going to look at three applications for this passage for our church. So that's the structure for the rest of our time this morning. Seven passages from Hebrews 1 through 12 to remind us of the gospel in the light of sexual expression, and then we're going to see three applications. So first, seven passages from Hebrews First, I want us to see that Hebrews begins where the Bible begins, and that's the creation of everything. God created sex because that's a part of creation. So when we read Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it says that God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, and then these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, and through Jesus, who's the heir of everything, through Jesus, God created the world. And it's through Jesus that he upholds the world. So when we see the beginning of Hebrews, the foundational truth of the gospel is it begins with God, it begins with Jesus, it begins with creation, and we see that this creation is good. So it's kind of a sub-parallel text, you can see in Genesis 1, 27, 28, sex was not just good, it's very good, actually. Read Genesis 1 sometime and notice that as creation's unfolding, every day something was created in this series of creation, you see God saw what he made that day and it was good, and then there was the next day, and then he saw what he made and it was good. But then when he gets to the culmination of creation, after man and woman are made, and after we see this passage that God created man in his image, he made them male and female, and he told them, and this is I think just sometimes interesting for Christians to realize sex is very good, and that the first command in the Bible is to have sex. Did you ever think about that? Be fruitful and multiply. How do you have more children? Well, by having sex. So here we go. We're back to fifth grade science class. (laughs) But friends, this is true. The first command ever to find, you know, in the Bible is sex is very good. In fact, I don't know if this is pushing it too far, but the next passage, if you read Genesis chapter 2, you'll see in Genesis chapter 2 that it's not good that man should be alone. In other words, you could say potentially that a creation in God's original design, without a woman and therefore without sex is not a good creation. So, in fact, creation without sex is not a good God-designed creation. And so, I think one of the things as we consider this reality is that I think it does us a lot of dishonor to marriage, contradiction to Scripture, and harm when we talk so negatively or maybe so proactively about, like, saving sex for marriage and Sometimes I've heard a lot of teenagers, for example, like, all I was ever told is sex is bad, sex is bad, don't have sex, don't have sex. It's like, friends, especially if you're not married yet and you're a young person, you should be hearing that God created sex and it's normal and right for you to desire sex within its proper context. What's happened is that sin came into the world. And this is what we see in Hebrews chapter two, verse eight. In Hebrews chapter two, verse eight, we see that we're slaves to our sexual sin not explicitly, but this verse kind of summarizes the fall of all humanity. Because in Hebrews chapter 2, as we remember looking back, creation is wonderful. It is majestic. And oh God, oh God, how majestic is all of your creation. And the Hebrews writer quotes that psalm, Psalm 8. And he says that all the things of creation were subjected underneath the feet of human beings. And it's a, it's a meditation and a quotation from what we just read In Genesis chapter 1. But when you look at creation, and when you look at specifically creation and the sexual expression of creation, do you see man mastering over sex and using it as the gift God gave? Or do you see sex driving men and women and that we're enslaved to it? See, who's really of subjection to one another? So at present, we don't see a world where man and women are in harmony with God's creation and design and having sex as a wonderful gift of his creation like he intended. Instead, we don't see, no, you can stay there. Instead, we don't see everything in subjection to mankind. We see mankind's sin ruining all of God's creation, including sexual expression. We see a world where adultery is being promoted through websites these days making it as easy for people to commit adultery, the very thing that we're told to honor the marriage bed, (laughs) let's just make it as easy as possible for people to find partners to commit adultery. We see a world where sexual immorality is pervasive and everywhere. I remember Matt Chandler, he's a pastor down in Dallas, Texas, and, you know, he's got a large following and big church or whatever, but I remember listening to several different messages of his, and he, he regularly uses the illustration, like, you can't even go to the grocery store anymore without seeing sex on every single magazine. He's like, it's even like on the, the home and gardens, and it's like, hey, 10 tips on sex. It's just like everywhere. And, and so, I, I mean, it's, it's a funny joke when you imagine it, but that's the reality. The reality is that sex is everywhere. It's more common than our daily news. It's all over our TVs. It's in our computers. And it is all around us, even in our pockets, and is easy accessible on our phones and tablets. Every 39 minutes, a new porn film is made here in the United States. Every 39 minutes. Two will have been made by the time you leave here today. Google trend analytics indicate that searches for teen porn have more than tripled in the last 10 years. Teen porn was the fastest growing genre over this 10 stretch period than any other search genre, period. Total searches for teen-related porn were estimated at half a million daily, far larger than any other genre, and represent one-third of total daily searches for pornographic websites. This is what we see. We see a world that is not in perfect harmony with God's creation. This is what we see. We do not yet see everything in subjection to humanity. We are enslaved to these things. Approximately 20% of all internet pornography is sexual, child sexual abuse. Seven out of ten youth have unwillingly exposed themselves to pornography here in the States. And the porn industry makes more money than Hollywood movies. 13,000 adult films are produced every year, amassing $13 billion in profit. By comparison, you'll see about 500 Hollywood movies making about $8.8 billion. But then when you hear that statistic, I just immediately thought, but how many of those 500 movies are full of celebrating sex outside of marriage and include sex and nudity all through them? So it's like, yeah, there's 13,000 adult films, but then there's 500 immoral films that we watch and are celebrating this immoral lifestyle. Porn films make more money than the National Football League, the National Basketball Association, and Major League Baseball all combined. When you think about your NFL games you watch today and how much money the NFL is raking in, realize it is not doing even close to what the porn industry is doing. They have larger revenues than all tech top tech companies, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, and Netflix combined. This is just one of those things that unless I guess you're in church or you're reading a book on purity, I mean... There's no press or talk about these sort of things. We hear about Bill Gates being so rich. There's some rich people that are getting a lot of money from the porn industry. Friends, this isn't news, though. I mean, unless you have been in a hole for years now, you know this to be true. The fallenness of the world and the pervasiveness of immorality, not just sexual immorality, this is just one aspect of immorality. So what should then be the result of these truths? Third series of scriptures is that we should be judged for our sexual sin. Remember in Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from God's sight. All of us are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. A reference more than likely back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They sin against God. They were naked and unashamed, sex was very good, and now they feel dirty and shameful. That dirtiness and shame, God says that all of us, we can't hide from him, we can't hide with our fig leaves, we can't pretend that he can't see. I mean, you, you can try and pretend, but God sees all late night pornographic activities on your phone or computer, etc. cetera. If you're hiding something and you think you fooled me or you fooled the church or you fooled your spouse, realize that you will give an account for these things. Hebrews 9:27 says it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And then our passage makes this quite clear too. Hebrews 13:4 says that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. I don't think we should think of this judgment only as future judgment by the way. I think in God's mercy, he has decided to create the world in such a way that as he cursed us with sin, the consequences of our sin are a judgment in and of themselves as well. Like, think about it this way. Sometimes people are like, man, that porn industry or this or this or whatever, some sort of issue that you kind of look at with detest, and you're like, that's terrible. God's going to judge us. America, we're going to get it for all of this bad stuff that we're doing. I, I hear this kind of conversation or talk. Don't you realize that Romans 1 says that God gives us over to our sin and the passions of our lust? And then that is the passive wrath of God. In other words, that is a judgment from God. It's not, okay, there's all this sexual immorality and pornography in America, so God's going to judge us. We're going to get it sometime. Or or, or here's a a more acute example of this. New Orleans is known for all their Mardi Gras, sexual immorality, etc. See, that's why Hurricane Katrina came. God was judging them for it. Friends, the fact that God gave them over to their sin and let them go on with their Mardi Gras experiences and all the different consequences that are a result of those things, that is, in fact, God's judgment as well. Realize that when it says, for God will judge the sexually immoral, part of that is the way he designed that sex outside of marriage, sex not in flow with his design, will not go well for you. It might for a moment. It might for the second of that euphoric experience. But how long will that last until you either feel awful because of your conscience and your guilt, your shame, or when all of those choices kind of come to a head and you get caught and adultery gets found out. I mean, anybody ever find somebody that got caught in adultery and like, you know, that still really worked out well for me. I'm glad I chose that. Nobody thinks that way. So think through the design God made for the world. And when it says that he will judge the sexually immoral, part of that is by letting you have your sexual immorality and all the fruits that come with it. Terrible things happen. STDs, unplanned pregnancies, leading to abortions, adultery leading to divorce, the guilt, the shame, and probably worst of all, the shriveling of your heart and your capacity to know the glories of Christ. You ever thought through every time you keep nibbling on the small fleeting pleasures of this world it shrinks your capacity to know the great glories of god if i could put it most bluntly and plainly it would be this some of the times that you all come here and you're like yeah i just wasn't getting much out of church it could be me and my sermons it could be the way we sang our songs or whatever but it could be your own heart it could be that you just don't have much capacity for the things of god lack of interest and zeal. Lack of desire and hunger because you're so full of the sin that you've been feeding yourself with every day. Sex is like the fire in your fireplace. Fires and fireplaces. I'm a big fan of them. We have a little debate in my house right now, and one of us is a fan, one of us is not. (laughs) It gets all like smoky and smelly, and I'm like, that's that's exactly what fireplaces are supposed to do, like create a fire. But you see, why my wife doesn't like the fire is because it's not just self-contained. All of it needs to stay in the fireplace. When the smoke starts coming out, then it's kind of ruining the atmosphere of everything else, in her opinion. I think it's improving, (laughs) etc. But if the fire gets out of the fireplace, if we have a fire in our living room, I mean, it burns the whole house down. Sex is the same exact way. Sex in marriage is like a fire in a fireplace that warms the house, creates intimacy and wonderful aromas that people like me enjoy. But sex outside of the fireplace, you're going to get burned. And it hurts and it destroys. Friends, I hope you remember this the next time you think through, will this be worth it? No, it's never worth it. All of these pains are precursors that point to, I think, the greater judgment that's being referred to here, that we die and then face judgment. And how many times has Hebrews 1 through 12, the gospel truths of Hebrews, reminded us, friends, pay more careful attention to what you've heard, lest you drift away. Because if God judged those who were in the Old Testament and they had an unclear picture of Jesus, and we now have a clear picture of Jesus, how much more will you face the judgment of God? That's chapter 2. Friends, think about the, the men and women who were wandering in their unbelief and not trusting the promises of God in the wilderness. If he in his wrath punished them and they did not get to enter his rest, then how much more you who have been given Jesus Christ and the gospel will not enter his rest and receive his wrath? That's chapters 3 and 4. Or how about in chapter 10? Remember that message I gave where I said, are you ashamed of the wrath of God? Our God is a consuming fire for those who continue deliberately in their sin. There will be no more sacrifice of sin for you. Hebrews is making this plain, friends. God is a God of wrath because He is holy and He hates sin. We don't need to be shying away from these truths. We need to be declaring them and warning you. Friends, in your sin, run to Jesus and not to your own confidence of your morality or your list of to-dos that are going to help fix you. Run to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus never sinned sexually. How wonderful is this? I am just flabbergasted. Maybe, I I don't know if you are. In every respect, Jesus Christ has been tempted in every way that we are. He was a man, he had hormones, he had anatomical body parts that all men, I would imagine, have. There's no description of him being some weird mixture of God-man that's abnormal from a normal man. He's a normal, fully man, fully man, fully God. And as fully man, he was tempted in every way sexually that you men have been. But think of, think of this, especially you men. Never once had a lustful thought. Never once had sex. Remained single and pure for 30 plus years of his life. And not for a second had a glancing look at a woman inappropriately. The purity of Jesus. And that's why I have this next passage, Hebrews chapter 7. You know in our passage in Hebrews thirteen four, it says that marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed should be undefiled. The same word about undefiled is used about Jesus here. We have a high priest, Jesus, who is holy, innocent, and then there's the word, undefiled, unstained, pure, separated from sinners, exalted to the heavens, and he has no need to offer sacrifices daily. Why doesn't Jesus have a need to do that? Well, first, for his own sins. He doesn't have any sin. Remember chapter 4? Lived his whole life free from sin. And then he has no need to actively offer sacrifices for us because he offered one sacrifice once and for all. Which leads us to our fifth and wonderful truth. Jesus saves sexual sinners. He saves all sinners, obviously. Every kind of sin you could imagine. If you're not struggling with sexual sin, there is hope in Jesus Christ today for all kinds of sin. But in today's message, we're talking about sexual sin. And there's something interesting about sexual sin in the, ga- the, the shame and the guilt that we feel, the dirtiness that so, oh, so often accompanies it, the sort of unworthiness that people feel. Friends, you need to hear the good news of God's grace this morning that we have been sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ's blood once and for all, including every single time you sinned sexually. I can remember the day, you know, I was sitting in a conference where John Piper was preaching on sexual sin, and he was talking about how this is one of the worst things that's happening to young people today, and he was talking about it in terms of missions. Why aren't young people going and giving their lives for Jesus? Because they're so guilty of sexual sin that they feel unworthy to serve God. And then he said this. this, this stuck with me, he says, you don't need the morning after pill, you need the morning after gospel. You don't need the morning after pill after you screw up and sin sexually. You need the morning after gospel. You need to preach these passages of Scripture to yourself for one single offering. He perfects now, perfected, made holy, undefiled. He sees you as perfected and unholy and undefiled now, even no matter what you did last night on the computer. Faith in Jesus links you to Jesus' perfect holiness, and therefore God sees all of us who are in faith in Christ as undefiled. Those who are then being continually sanctified. There is grace and forgiveness. Hebrews 9, 13, and 14, I don't think it's on the screen, but how much more will the blood of Jesus purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I hope that that word is a word of encouragement for some of you. How much more will Jesus' blood purify your conscience? Your guilty conscience needs cleansed this morning. The way for it to be cleansed is to make much of the blood of Jesus. And what I love about that passage in Hebrews 9, 13, and 14 is that he doesn't just save us from our shame, but he also saves, saves us from that slavery, that we can now serve the living God and we don't just experience God's grace to forgive us, but to then lead us out into his service. So, number six, truth from Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We should lay aside our sin and we should run hard our race. F, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before us, endured the cross, despised its shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. One thing I want you to see from this passage. Is that repentance does not mean just laying aside sin. Or, in other words, repentance doesn't look like focusing on your sin too much. Because repentance always includes a turning and a laying down your sin to turn and look at Jesus. That's true repentance. And sometimes some of you might be struggling with the idea of, like, okay, sexual sin is bad. Okay, so stop doing it, stop doing it, stop looking at it. Look at Jesus. See, if you keep just saying, no, 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 like you're still looking at your sin, you're just looking at it as negative and bad. And yes, you need to acknowledge that it's sin. That's one half of it. But if you just stay there and say, okay, I'm gonna do everything in my power and my strength to just stop sinning, stop sinning. You're gonna fail miserably time and time again. But if you say, okay, that sin is bad, let me give all of my energy and strength to look at Jesus and be melted by the gospel of Jesus, then your heart gets changed because that's really your problem anyway. Someone once put it like this. I think there's even a word in the Scriptures that justifies this logic. Men and women, don't just stop lusting. Continue lusting. Just lust after Jesus. Desire Jesus. The solution of our sanctification is not to say no to desires... Well, in one sense, these sexual desires should be rightly expressed in marriage, so say yes to them in marriage. But if you're not married, and that's not happening anytime soon, then say yes to Jesus. Desire him. Which leads us to what the end goal of purity is in the end. Seventh and final passage from Hebrews. Purity is not the end goal. Jesus is. Purity is a means to an end. Strive for holiness, for without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness, that's what we're talking about this morning, right? Being sexually holy. That's not the end goal. Strive for holiness so that you can see God. So you can be in his presence and dwell with him. Strive for holiness and see to it that none of you are sexually immoral and unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Some commentators have suggested that this might be like Esau's sin wasn't just the selling of his birthright for a a bowl of soup but that he was potentially a sexually immoral person. But either way, what a perfect illustration for the short, fleeting, trivial pleasures of sexual expression that last for a moment and then you waste away your life for a lifetime. Remember that story? Jacob and Esau? And he has all of the inheritance coming to him. This is what happens when we choose our way over God's. It's like selling ourselves out for a bowl of cereal. And the reason why we wouldn't want to do that is not just because the goal is holiness, as Jesus promised in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, this this corresponds so well with what I just described with your view of repentance. Your view of repentance should not be, okay, my focus is to be holy, be holy, be holy. No, your, your focus should be, I want to see and know and experience the enjoyment of God's presence in my life. So that's the gospel from Hebrews 1 through 12. I think that's about as full of a gospel I can present to you this morning in our time as we apply it to sexuality. So let's now apply this passage to our church. I have three questions for us. So as we look at Hebrews 13, 4 again, that's our passage. Let marriage be held in honor. Let marriage be bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Three questions for Embassy Church. And I want you to think about this corporately and collectively. All three of these questions have to do with us as a group, not just you as an individual, although all of us are individuals who need to play our part. Question number one. What is the posture of our heart, Embassy Church? Our purity is not just about the positions of our bodies in relation to other people. Our purity is about the posture of our heart. Jesus made this brutally clear when he quotes when I quote Matthew chapter 5, 27 and 28, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the things we're supposed to keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled. Don't commit adultery. But Jesus says to us, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Later on in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is going to say, "It's in fact, porneia, the same word we have in our passage, flows out of our hearts. All evil things, including sexual immorality, flow out of our heart, which is preposterous when people say, well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality, for example. Yes, he did. All sin flows out of our heart, and we have a broken heart. And sexual immorality includes all sexual sin that's not in marriage. And Jesus rightly defined marriage in Matthew 19 as what God joined together in Genesis 1 and 2, let no man separate, a man and a woman. So what does your heart say? What do our hearts say? Some of you are believing the lie, well, this is for somebody next to me because I don't have a pornography addiction. I'm not lusting after naked people on a computer screen. I've never committed adultery. Have you ever looked on Facebook at an ex-girlfriend or boyfriend and thought, hmm, I wonder what could be. Jesus says, you're an adulterer. They may not even be naked or immorally dressed. The meditation of, hmm, I wonder what that could be like is adultery in your heart. Romance, movies, novels, flirting with coworkers, etc. If you want to just make this about, well, I'm clean because for the last six months I've not looked at any internet pornography, but yet every day you're staring at people and thinking illegitimate thoughts, you're not so clean. What does our hearts say? And I think I want to start here with the application because before we move out of this room, especially in your thoughts about sexual immorality in the world, I think we need to be reminded that God calls us to first consider the plank, the log in our own eye before we start looking at the specks of the people's eyes around us. So that's Jesus in Matthew 7, 3, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye when you do not notice the log in your own eye? Or more specifically, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when the church is dealing with a case of sexual immorality, that's the context of this passage, sex is in the church, bad sex, It says in verse 1 of chapter 5 that there is a man in the church that is sleeping with his stepmom, and the church is not doing anything about it. And so then he says this at the end. I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, he qualifies this. Now, I'm not saying that the sexually immoral of the world outside of the church, because then you just have to leave the world and go live in Mars. You see what I'm saying? He said, I said don't associate with with sexually immoral people who bear the name of a brother who call themselves Christian, but live their life as if, well, I can live however I want with my sexual expression. Adultery, sexual immorality, you name it. And he says, no, we should not associate, we should not join and link arms, we should not offer the Lord's Supper, we should church discipline, etc. People who are calling themselves Christian, but have no desire to live like a Christian. That's not a repentant person. But notice what he says at the end here is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge god will judge those outside the church so therefore purge the evil person from among you i think this is a helpful word for us as a church because what does our heart say when we think about this issue of sexual morality, and we're bombarded with messages and conversations and questions from the world about homosexuality for example i ask you embassy church Is our heart, first and foremost, directed toward our own purity in the church? Or are we trying to legislate everyone else's purity outside of the church? It seems to me, 1 Corinthians 6, Matthew 7, and just the general tenor that flows from the gospel is that we should be humble hearts, humble hearts that are quick and ready to confess that we're sexual sinners too. We're not just trying to go around and tell you, hey, homosexuals, you're sinners and God's going to judge you. No, no, I'm a sexual sinner and God's going to judge me too, and that's why we need Jesus Christ. Let's examine our hearts and ask ourselves are you right now thinking the majority of this message has been for somebody outside of the church? Or have you forgotten that the preacher is not preaching to non Christians in chapter 13? Chapter 13, verse 4, is addressed to the brothers and sisters in the church. Christians, brothers and sisters, members of Embassy Church, let's honor marriage. Let's pursue purity. So, so many questions abound in this moment, right? Where do you go? What do you say? So many issues to deal with, and I'm sure we will not exhaust them all, and some of you will certainly feel wanting. Wanting. But I ask us, do we have a posture of love in our hearts toward sexual immoral people and humility and patience and still at the same time stand for truth? How How can we wrap all of those things up? Stand for the truth about marriage and sexual expression, but yet at the same time be humble, quick to confess our own sin, patient with those who are sinning, and ultimately and first and foremost love them because that's the trump card of the day every conversation i've ever had with anybody is well that's not loving i think this passage is the best passage to go to you've already heard it read it's 1 corinthians 6 9 through 11 this was your assurance of pardon today after our prayer of confession or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral that's our word porneia nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor evilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We should tell people this. We should not be ashamed of it. It is true, and it is most definitely loving to warn people of the judgment of God. But it is also extremely loving to present it in such a way that this homosexual practice, and sexual immorality? Almost every single time these things are in the Bible, they are listed with a whole bunch of other sins around them. So, friend, I ask you, he who has no sin casts the first stone. Are you faultless in all of that list? Never stolen? Never been greedy? Never gotten drunk? Never been a reviler or a swindler? Never had any other sexual immoral expression, even if it's heterosexual sin? You see what I'm saying? I think it serves and loves people well, and it's humble if we point out that homosexuality, although it is sin, and as we stand for that truth, as a church, collectively, but we also do that with humble broken hearts, knowing that we are no better off than any homosexual person in this room or outside of it. It is loving and patient to realize that same-sex attraction is different from being defined by the lifestyle of homosexuality. There is so much more to be said on that topic, but you need to know, friends, having the desire of same-sex attraction and feeling as if all I've ever known my whole life, and this could be some of you in this room, all I've ever known in my life is that I desire the same sex. We see now that this current world we live in is not in line with God's original design, including our sexual orientation. So therefore, it should not surprise us if we understand the gospel truths we've just rehearsed that some people's sexual orientation will be out of line with God's design. Therefore, it would be very inappropriate to say, God made me this way. Maybe you were born into a sin-broken world that has a sexual orientation towards the same-sex person, but that does not mean that you should then embrace wholeheartedly those desires. Because if I have any of these other desires, well, I've got a a tendency to have multiple spouses, multiple partners. That would be adultery. It would be wrong. And even if I have that desire, and even if I were to say, well, ever since I was born, I've always thought I want multiple women in my life. All of you would look at me like I'm crazy. But if we treat all of these things equally, we start to see, I think, a little bit more of the balance of God's word, and hopefully the humility and love that we could extend to those who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Just because that's their inclination or tendency does not mean we need to ostracize them from the church, and oh, the worst thing I could imagine possible is that Embassy Church would be known as those who are anti-gay. Yeah, that's right, Pastor Phil. You go get those gay people. Are you serious? I mean, if you have any of that in your heart, I'd encourage you, humble your own self. Repent of your own pride and self-righteousness to look down on others that have different sin struggles same-sex attraction is not the same thing as those who willingly embrace and continue in a lifestyle of homosexual patterns two different things let's treat them as two different things so it's loving when we stand up for these truths warn people of the judgment of god and help people see that there is a new way for them to define themselves that's what i love about this passage What I love about this passage is that the worst lie that the world is throwing at us about same-sex marriage and agenda is that they, because they have the desire, should rightly act on it however they please, and therefore they are defined by these things, and if we were to take that away from them, that would be unloving to them. This really construes all of what you've just heard about the glory of Christ in the gospel. All of us are confronted with our own sexual sin in the gospel. None of us are exempt from feeling the ouch and sting of my desires sometimes are not in order with the word of God. So all of us feel the, oh, I'm a sinner too. And therefore, all of us should be redefining our identity, not in terms of our sexual expression, but in our relationship with God. It is loving, and it is probably the most loving thing to share with people the good news of the gospel, that such were some of you. You were defined this way, but you're not this way anymore. You were washed, you were justified, you were cleansed. That most definitely is loving when we tell people these truths. One quick story to illustrate this. When I lived in Washington, D.C., I was working at a fine coffee establishment called Starbucks. As I was there, I had at least half of my coworkers engaging in sexual immoral practices of same-sex marriage even, because DC had just recently, before I started working there, approved same-sex marriage. And one couple in particular, they were actually dating each other and then eventually got married. One of the persons, was feeling extremely guilty because she grew up in a Christian background and she felt ostracized from her family and she knew that I was a preacher guy and that I was studying Bible and that I was in seminary and so she came up to me and this was just cold right out of nowhere. Hi, how are you? Hey, Phil, I got a question for you. Like, whoa. And she says, my family thinks because I got married to my girlfriend that I'm going to go to hell. Do you think so too? Hello. Hello. I mean, friends, I think I really want to ask you, what do you think you would have said in that moment? Because I can tell you that it was not because of my great intellect or gifts of eloquence or whatever. I think it was really one of these things, and I don't try and make myself the hero of every story, but I think God, in his grace, gave me this word, 1 Corinthians 6. And this is what I told her. I said, that's a really good question, but I want you to know that I don't have homosexual sin tendencies. I've never had them. I've never desired same-sex attraction. But I'm a heterosexual sinner. And every time homosexuality is listed, it's listed in a group of sins. And if you and I were to open up the Bible, I would show you, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. I don't deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. I may not be guilty of that one, but I'm guilty of pretty much all the other ones. I think in that moment, I disarmed that heated agenda-driven question you know and she started listening to me for the first time and then i told her but i've been washed i have been sanctified and i have been justified because of what jesus christ has done for me and the great thing was that this person wanted to keep listening to more and study the bible more and meet with people in our church more and there was follow-up from that conversation I just have this feeling that if I would have said, yeah, you're going to hell, what, what good does that do? How does that love someone? How does that humble yourself before them and, and acknowledge that, yes, we're deserving of hell? See how you can still stand for the truth but love someone and put yourself down where they're at and say, listen, I may not have your sin struggles, but I've got plenty of them. So more than anything, I offer that story to you as an illustration for how I think we can potentially be a loving, humble, stand for truth, and patient with the complexities of these things. Is that the posture of your heart this morning? Two quick final questions. What is your plan and strategy for growing in holiness? And I want you to hear about this as a you plural what is your plan, our plan, for sexual immoral holiness? Expressing ourselves rightly. We've seen in Hebrews that perseverance in the faith is a community project. And that in chapter 3, we're told that we should not be given over to the deceitfulness of our sin, but rather we should encourage each other every day as long as it's called today. So I just want to exhort all of you, does your plan include other brothers and sisters in this room? And if it doesn't, I'd urge you to make immediate plans starting today to have some sort of discipling relationship where you can talk through these issues and help one another with the deceitfulness of sin. Thirdly, what is our purpose as a church? Again, there's a lot more that we can say on this, but I want to make it plain. My aim in this message is not to present to you our plan as a church to change the laws of America or the Supreme Court or even of our local school districts. Our purpose as a church is not to make everyone around us moral. Our purpose is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, uphold the truth of his word, to honor and treasure marriage because it points to the gospel of Christ. And if our mission is achieved, we believe that that will be the best for the world and our community. And hopefully it has rippling effects to our society as we look at school districts and supreme courts. But know this, friends. Most Christians throughout all of history have not lived in government systems where you have the freedom to vote nor the opportunity to make change. So that creates a whole bunch of controversies. But most Christians have lived in pagan, secular, sexually immoral societies, much like and maybe even worse than ours, and the gospel still flourishes. Our church should not be coward or afraid or worried or struggling with what are we going to do look what the supreme court did let the supreme court do whatever they want and if any of us as individual citizens of the united states want to use and stand up for truth their opportunity to vote and make legislation change by all means friends as individual christians who are citizens of this united states use those privileges rightly but you will not be hearing agendas or missions, or plans for us to gather around as a church and say, we're going to change the legislation of America. Our hope is to present to you the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we want to conclude this morning with a song that we've never sung before that I think just beautifully, poetically presents you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you the song lyrics first, okay? Because it pretty much recaps Everything that we've heard this morning. Man was fashioned from the dust, molded by the hands of one, was breathed to life an earthly son, and made for fellowship with God. That's Genesis 1. God created man, and it was good and beautiful and wonderful. Genesis chapter 2 says that from the wound of Adam's side, as he opened up the rib, he gave man a bride. And he said, whoa, there's flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones, and I will call her woman. But in Genesis 3, they made a, trist, uh, a truce with God, or with sin, and died, and they broke their fellowship with God, and it birthed the fall of all mankind. But here's the good news. Similar to the way that the first bride of all of humanity was born from the side of Adam, the second, greater, and final bride from Jesus was born from wounds from Jesus' side. And saints of God and heirs with Christ, the veil was torn and creation cried. The, bor- the bride was born from Jesus' side. And I was thinking a lot about that veil imagery. You know how the veil is like this covered over and until it's like time to give the vows or whatever moment in the wedding ceremony, it's like, okay, now the bride is yours. I'm, I'm handing her over to you. And now there's like this close, intimate, lock eyes. There's nothing covering. There's intimacy. I was thinking, that's the same exact picture of the veil that's before the throne room of the Holy of Holies. You see, we're separated from God. There's this veil that separates the holy beauty of God's glory and presence from our presence because of our sin. But on that cross, as Jesus was pierced to his side and gave the final death blow... And he said, it is finished. The wonderful good news is that the, the veil was torn, and it's, it's almost like the veil was lifted, and now intimacy with Christ and his church can be full and final and consummated. And so we get to celebrate. Now we're born again and clothed in white, crowned with glory justified. A child of wrath is brought to life. We, we were born from Jesus' side, and then we will sing the bridge, hallelujah. I'm born again. He's alive, now I'm alive in him. It's a new song. You've never heard it before, I'm assuming. So I'm going to have the ushers take the Lord's Supper and pass it around. And what I'd like us to do is, if you want to, you can feel free to kind of like, I'll just try and wing it and sing along. Or you can listen to it the first time around, and then we're going to all stand after we take the bread and cup and sing it together, hopefully after hearing it once. Let's pray together. Father.